When we started the book of Exodus, as I have mentioned before, we were in the other place, in the parlor or something. And I was more or less, and I like to do this sometimes, I just approach it as doing it as a reading. I do, a, this is how I do my Bible study, I do readings. And my readings come from just studying my day to study the Hebrew or the Greek or whatever. And I just do the readings. And then I think to myself how to expand what I just studied and how applicable is that to where I am and where we are and all. So we did that a little bit with Exodus. Uh, I didn't make it quite as personal as I would have otherwise. Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy are interesting to try to extract sermons from to make it sermonic. Exodus, uh, we find ourselves in, in the part of Exodus, which I'm going fin- to finish Exodus tonight, and I'm not going to read it word for word, and here's why. We're going to be in, uh, I'm going to do an overview. I'm going to go back all the way through just in an overview because there was a big gap and we may have lost focus a little bit on some things. But how the book of Exodus can relate, can be relative to us and certainly to the ministry of Christ, which relates to us. And we're in the place where I would be And I actually started this last time uh, from chapter 36 on until the last few verses in chapter 40, which is the last chapter of Exodus. It's a repeat of what is found in Exodus 25 and following for a couple of chapters there. In In earlier in Exodus, God said to Moses... You will make this place and you will make it like this. And these are the materials that you'll use. And here's how long it'll be and how high and how wide and so forth. So it was just, and you know, if the Lord takes that much time, space in his word to designate such a description, it has to have meaning. And so we, we studied it and we talked about the meaning of the way back. We talked about the meaning of the colors and the gold and the silver and, and, the, and the brass and, and, and the hangings and the materials and all. We talked about how it, it screamed the ministry of Christ and what went on in the tabernacle in those different places were reflected in the New Testament in so many ways in the work of Christ. The point is this. We already studied all of those things word for word. So I'm not going to repeat the same things that we've done earlier in Exodus by reading over and over the same dimensions and the same hangings and the same materials and and so forth. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take this final look at Exodus and go all the way through until we get to those final verses in Exodus that are not found earlier in Exodus. I hope that makes sense. So we're not going to repeat what we've already covered tonight, even though we're to that point. 
I don't like to preach the same sermon twice. So we, we just know that we've already been there until we get to these verses at the very end. But before we get there, I want to do this final look in this overview of Exodus. Now I'm using, I'm, I'm drawing upon other, the work of other people. If, if I outline the book of Exodus, you know, I have a, <laughs> I have this extraordinarily long outline and I found it easier just to look at the outline from other outline of Exodus and summary of Exodus from other, other people who have made commentary or whatever on it. And I've sort of taken this and that. So, so this is not necessarily an original work, but the outline of Exodus is the outline of Exodus, right? Uh, regardless of where I, whether I put it together that way or somebody else. So with that in mind, we start with number one, which is in chapters one through 11. The reason I'm going to do an overview is because as in all the other scriptures, we see as best we can, because God has revealed it to us in Exodus, we see the mind of God and how he works with his people. The first thing he will do is work through a leader, and a divinely anointed, just common guy. In other words, he doesn't have superpowers. He wasn't born on Krypton. Uh, he's, 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 just, he's just there on planet Earth. And so the, the, the account of Exodus and thinking of the mind of God, he began, when he moves upon his people and going to work with his people, he starts with a deliverer. That's in the first 11 chapters. So we take note of the fact that God's people are enslaved and they're in another land. They are where they are not supposed to be. And God has prophesied already that after 400 years, he will bring them out. So that prophecy has come to a conclusion here, that period of time, and God notes the slavery. The word of God notes that Israel is enslaved. And then the word of God is careful to describe the birth of Moses and how God divinely intervenes in the, in the uh, circumstances that surround Moses and his life. I'm not going to go through all the details. You just remember the, the little floating boat and all that stuff, right? After a while, for many years, after Moses is developed by God. Now, it's interesting that God would develop him in a, in a Gentile, a pagan land. And he would use the knowledge and the experiences that Moses would have, which, was, which were gained from his position that the Lord had guided him into as a young, as a baby and a young man and in, in the growth in his life. All of those years, God was preparing him for probably the greatest work that anybody has ever done. I mean, of course, the greatest work that's been done is Christ on the cross. 
I'm talking here, though, from an, from an earthly perspective in the sense that close to three million people are going to be moved across a desert. And they're going to have to be watered and fed and they're going to have to be organized and cared for and they're going to have to be guided and they're going to have to go from point A to point B and the logistics are like a nightmare. But according to Josephus, not necessarily to Moses because of Moses' upbringing in the Egyptian military and because of the high rank as a commander that he had obtained by the time he was 40 years old. So God has a plan. It starts, it starts with God in his divine and sovereign way moving according to his purpose to now rescue his enslaved people who have become a nation while they were there. They were just a loose-knit tribe of people when Joseph first went there and then his family joined him. But now 400 years later, they're a nation. They don't understand what it means to be a nation, but they are a nation of people. God is working during all that time, especially in the life of Moses, something that Moses couldn't have understood. The time comes, however, because of other circumstances, Moses has to leave Egypt. And he goes to the land of Midian. Now Midian was a son of Keturah, who was a concubine of Abraham after Sarah died. So the Midianites are descended from Abraham Surely they would have understood something about the God of Abraham. They were not Israel. So you can't say that everything that applies to Israel applies to Midian, but there must have been some kind of knowledge about the God of Abraham that would have come down through the years and generations in Midian. Moses just happens to find a place where he can develop another life. Now along in here is the incident of the burning bush, the miraculous appearance of Almighty God. Through all of that, Moses then returns to Egypt and he proclaims that Israel is going to be delivered. Comes the contest with Pharaoh and then uh, the plagues that come against Egypt. Battle of the gods, I hope that you'll remember during that time when we studied this portion of Exodus, how each of the plagues had an animal or an insect or whatever that could be identified with, with, the, uh, with a particular god of Egypt. And so as though every time a particular strong God of Egypt was thought about, it was characterized in some critter in the plagues and utterly defeated. So Yahweh shows himself as superior to anything religiously, spiritually that Egypt thought 
it could present to Moses. Brings us to the second part in chapters 12 through 14. Yahweh now provides deliverance for his people and he does it by blood of sacrifice, by blood, by covering, by covering blood and by, the, by his power, the final of the plagues. It was during that time that the Passover was instituted. That was the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, the blood on the doorposts. God would pass over, the, the, the angel of death would pass over the house covered in the blood. Everybody else, firstborn died. So they were released. The power of God, the blood of sacrifice, God having raised up leadership to proclaim to the enemy and to the people of God what God was going to do, the word of God proclaimed by the servant of God, God's purpose moves infallibly through the greatest nation on earth, Egyptians, the Egypt, the Egyptians. Now, this connects God to his people in a very special way. And so they observe Passover. Now, having been delivered from Egypt, they're delivered from something to something. There are all kinds of obstacles. The first, of course, the Red Sea and the army of Egypt, the army of Pharaoh in hot pursuit. You know the story. The Red Sea is parted, power of God. Nothing stops the purpose of God. God has declared he has raised up his deliverer. Through his deliverer, he has delivered the message it doesn't matter how powerful the Egyptians may think they are or how strong or great or mighty Pharaoh thinks he is. That's nothing to Yahweh. And, and, and Yahweh makes a laughing stock of the gods of Egypt along the way, just to make a point. And with his great power, he causes the Red Sea to be parted. You know that wonderful story. And they walked across on dry ground. And when Egypt tried to go then the enemies of God were crushed. The people of God didn't do, have to do anything but trust God. It looked awfully bad, but all they had to do was trust God and trust the deliverer whom God had called and had divinely prepared for this particular thing. People who study the Bible will tell you that probably the second greatest Personality, the second greatest character in the Bible is Moses. Of course, that's second after Jesus Christ. Because of what Moses did, it just would have been impossible, of course, unless God be with him during all this. So Yahweh now provides deliverance. Israel renewed and re-energized enters into a time of separation and enters into a time of spiritual experiences so that they can grow in their knowledge 
of their God, the true and living God. Now, in many ways, this corresponds to the Christian experience. Uh, the song of the redeemed, they had difficulties after they were redeemed. The bitter water that was sweetened by a tree, the cross sweetens our bitter experiences. Elim, which reflects the delightful Christian experience, a time of respite. Then uh, the wilderness of Sin, where came the manna and the quail. And Christ said, I'm the bread of life, not the bread that the fathers ate and died. Who eats this bread lives forever. So we have this type of the Lord giving himself here in the wilderness of sin, the manna and the quail, the smitten rock. That rock was Christ. Amalek, which is, who is a type of the flesh, and the victory that was won over the enemy, you remember? You had to keep God engaged in this thing, and as long as they held up his arms, as long as he kept his arms raised up toward the Lord, Israel prevailed, but when he got weak and faltered, then Amalek began to prevail. It was all of the Lord working through his people, a type of the flesh, and the flesh can be weak. Then Jethro, whom Moses goes back to visit, and the, he's called a priest of Midian, and his wisdom, you know, you can't really say that his wisdom is divinely inspired. He was, he was a priest of Midian. What does that mean? There's another name that is used for him in the book of Exodus. It's called, the name is Ruel, which means friend of God. Well, was that a title? Did that mean that Jethro was Ruel and thus people trusted him and, and he was a good man of integrity and and would, would call on the God of Abraham? Don't know. Nobody knows. But he offers this wisdom, this worldly wisdom, and it comes from Jethro, which is, which is in contrast to divine revelation. And actually, in this, in this series of events, following the, following the advice that Jethro gave to Moses, the concept of the Sanhedrin was born in that time. Which brings us to part number four. Part number three was Israel marching and gaining, gaining knowledge of the Lord in a spiritual education through their experiences. Part number four, Yahweh gives the law. Here comes the condemnation. This is chapters 19 through 24. Israel arrives at Mount Sinai. The agreement is made to accept the law. Whatever he says, that's what we'll do. Well, that was kind of a, <laughs> a lie. Then come the Ten Commandments, the order for the altar. Then comes social legislation after that. All of that found in chapters 19 through 24. The law is given. Part five. God knows that we cannot, nobody, not even Israel, with all of Israel's advantages, with all that Israel had. Okay, think of this. Just, let's, just, let's just focus and limit it 
to the experiences of Israel in the book of Exodus. A pillar of fire, a mighty cloud, the glory of God shows. God coming to the top of the mountain, surrounding it with with lightning and thunder and a black cloud like judgment day. Anything that touched the mountain would die. Strike, strike the rock and water. The people needed water. Strike the rock and water will come out. The people were hungry. They wake up. They wake up to manna. A sweet wafer. They get tired of sweet wafers and God sends them quail. This goes on and on with the people of God. And yet they continually failed with all of the advantages they have. That's because the law cannot save us. We cannot, we, ha, we don't have the ability to keep the law. It cannot save us. God knew that. And so he gives the pattern and the blueprint and how the people are to construct the tabernacle. Now that's chapters 25 through 40, which is where we are now. And we have come all the way down to D, construction of the tabernacle. We've moved through all of these other things and how God used all of those situations to further deal with his people that they might become more knowledgeable of him, of who he is, what he does. And the tabernacle is proof that God knew we couldn't keep the law. So God would give provisions for the tabernacle to be made so that offerings could be made there as a type of the great offering that God would finally send in behalf of his people, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you have all of these chapters that describe everything to do with the tabernacle. Later on, we're going to see other things when we get into other books later on about all of the, the festivals and the feasts and we look at the, at the uh, sacrifices, the offerings, the five major offerings that are to be made and all of that is proof that God always knew that man could not keep his law. The law was given to make us understand how bad we are and not to give us hope that we might become this good. That's not the way the law is. Here's how bad you are. I have these 10 things. And before you get to the end of your life, you would probably have broken every one of them. So what do you do? You go to the tabernacle. And we already studied how all of those materials reflected the person and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that brings us to where we're going to conclude this thing tonight. The tabernacle is built and it is filled with the glory of the Lord. So let's look at it. Chapter 40, verse 34. And the cloud, you remember the cloud? It was leading them. It was out there always showing them where to go. And it was fire. It became a pillar of fire or a cloud according to what time of day it was. So here's the cloud. With all that they had, 
What he had told them to do in those earlier chapters, they did. They built the tabernacle. Brings us to verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the Mishka, the, the tabernacle. So the, the glory of God that had been the, the presence of God that had been their protection from enemies, it would swing around and stand between them and their enemies or or it would, it would be a wonderful, glorious experience to know that this wonderful supernatural thing was the presence of God to his people. Now, what happens? This thing comes into, comes over and fills the tabernacle. It's called in the next verse, the tent of meeting. Moses can't go there anymore. The builders who built it could go there. Moses could go in there and inspect it. But now that the glory of God, the glory of Yahweh has come into that thing, the only one who can enter into that place are those among the priesthood whom Yahweh had designated could come in. Nobody else can come in. So from that point onward, Moses cannot come in. The builders can't go. This, this is it. Because Yahweh is present in there. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Well, what does that mean, okay? I'm not gonna go through all the stuff, but you just remember, you couldn't, you know, the tabernacle was separated by walls of skins. It was just kind of like glorified bed sheets just you know, all the way around. You go in one place. There was only one place to go in. Couldn't go in anywhere else, any other way. The first thing you had to confront and deal with was the brazen altar, the altar of brass. The first thing you had to do was deal with sin. Just to make a sin offering. And then as part of worship, whatever, whatever the situation required, maybe a burnt offering. After that, Israelites could only go so far and no farther because there was the inner sanctuary, the holy place. And separating the holy place from the deepest part within was this veil. And on the other side was the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and so forth. All of those things spoke of man's needs and God's provisions spiritually for his needs. Every part of that, the, even the things that were in the, in the holy place, the showbread and the, uh, the lampstand, all that stuff. Everything, even, and we talked about it this morning, even where the Ark of the Covenant was, the Holy of Holies, where on the Day of Atonement once a year, the high priest and only the high priest could go in there. So why is that? It's because God now has made his presence known. And where God is, the outfittings were gold. And where man comes in, it was brass. And then it becomes silver. There's brass, sin, silver, redemption, ransom payment. And then gold, deity, the presence of God. What, what else was on the, well, the Ark of the Covenant. The lid of it was the mercy seat, the cherubim who were given the charge in Genesis to guard the way to the tree of life. On the inside of that box, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant made of 
wood, a special kind of wood, a casey wood, and then covered with gold, which spoke both of the humanity and deity of Christ. And on the lid, the blood was sprinkled from the sacrifice of atonement. This is where this is where this is where God dealt with the sins of his people. And it all speaks of Christ. Everything speaks of Christ. So the glory of the Lord has joined the presence of his people, the presence of the Lord, the presence of his people. And the thing that's in between is a priesthood. And what the priesthood presides over are the things that are required to make the worshiper understand the concept of sin, sacrifice, redemption, forgiveness, and ultimately the presence of God. When the cloud rose up from over the Mishkan, the sons of Israel set out in all their journeys. But if the cloud did not rise up, they did not set out until the day that it rose. Obedience. Presence of Yahweh, the guidance of Yahweh, our, our duty, our obligation. Yahweh is our God and he knows what's best for us. We follow our God. So if, the, if that cloud, if the presence of Yahweh rested, it stood still. Over the tabernacle, can't go anywhere. You just sit tight. But when it rose up and began to move, they had to move. That's why that tabernacle was made to be so easily set up and taken down. For the cloud of Yahweh was upon the Mishkan by day, that is the tabernacle, and there was fire within it by night. So you see the cloud of day, fire at night. Before the eyes of the entire house of Israel in all their journeys, they saw it. The presence of God in the presence of the people who had the law and the vow of the people that they would obey the law and they never could obey the law. So the best of the best in the best of times with the most advantages that people had ever had still failed. That's why they had a tabernacle. That's why they had a brazen altar. That's why they had a holy place. That's why they had the holy of holies. That's why they had the priesthood. To deal with these things that were necessary and in dealing with these things, teach the people about sin and salvation found in Yahweh. What began in gloom ended in glory. So you see, that's, a, that's sort of an overview of the, of the Christian life itself. And it gives us an idea of the mindset of God for his people, his provisions, the way he cares for us, the way he gives us strength and guidance and gives to us every detail regarding our sin and his salvation. All of it is there for us. Well, I hope you got something out of this study of Exodus and God willing, we'll do, we'll do something else next time. All right, let's pray together and we'll be through. Oh Lord, how we love you. 
How we marvel at the details that you have established as, as, you, as you irreversibly cause your purpose to be fulfilled through time. Even into this present day. Father, we worship you and we thank you for the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. And the great lesson that we have in this book of Exodus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.